For most of us, the crucifixion of Jesus is a familiar story. This morning, I think God wants us to understand this event in a fresh way. So I'm going to read from the message version of the Bible. It's a version that is faithful to the original Greek text, but it's written in modern English and it relates the details of Jesus' last day in the fluid style of a story. As I read, I invite you to use your imagination. Picture in your mind the unfolding scene of the Roman guards, the mocking crowd, and our loving Savior hanging on the cross to die in our place. Listen and imagine as I read from the book of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 27 to 50. The soldiers assigned to the governor took Jesus into the governor's palace and got the entire brigade together for some fun. They stripped him and dressed him in a red toga. They braided a crown from branches of a thorn bush and jammed it on his head. They put a stick in his right hand for a scepter and then they knelt before him in mocking reverence. Bravo, king of the Jews, they said. Bravo. Then they spit on him and hit him on the head with the stick. After they'd had their fun, they took off the toga and put his own clothes back on him and then they proceeded out to the crucifixion. Along the way, they came on a man from Cyrene named Simon and made him carry Jesus' cross. Arriving at Golgotha, the place they call Skull Hill, they offered him a mild painkiller, a mixture of wine and myrrh. But when he tasted it, he wouldn't drink it. And then after they'd finished nailing him to the cross and waiting for him to die, they whiled away the time by throwing dice for his clothes. Above his head, they posted the criminal charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Along with him, they also, also crucified two criminals, one to his right, the other to his left. And people passing along the road jeered, shaking their heads in mock lament. You bragged that you could tear down the temple and then rebuild it in three days, so show us your stuff. Save yourself. If you're really God's son, then come down from that cross. The high priests, along with the religion scholars and leaders, were right there, mixing it up with the rest of them, having a great time poking fun at Jesus. He saved others. He can't even save himself. King of Israel, is he? Then let him come down from that cross. We'll all become believers then. He was so sure of God. Well, let God rescue his son now if he wants him. He did claim to be God's son, didn't he? And even the two criminals crucified next to him joined in the mockery. From noon to three, the whole earth was dark. And then around mid-afternoon, Jesus groaned out of the depths of his soul, crying loudly, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? Which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Some bystanders who heard him said, he's calling for Elijah. And one of them ran and got a sponge soaked in sour wine and lifted it on a stick so he could drink. And the others joked, don't be in such a hurry. Let's see if Elijah comes and saves him. But Jesus, again crying out loudly, breathed his last. So why does this happen? Why is Jesus executed? 
From a human perspective, he's killed because everyone of significance has betrayed him. He's been abandoned by his closest followers. Two different courts, one religious, one civil, refused to pursue justice, but instead play politics. So the crucifixion is the tragic result of betrayal by everyone who mattered. Betrayal by those who set this process in motion. Betrayal by those who could have stopped it and called it what it was, injustice. There's tremendous irony in this. Our God became a man because he loves us. Jesus lived on this earth so the people he created could know God. Jesus wanted children and teenagers and women and men to be able to understand how to experience God's love and how to live each day by trusting him. It was all for love. And the people God created spurned his love. And yet... By doing so, they wound up actually paving the way for their own redemption. Because when Jesus died on the cross on Passover weekend, he became the last sacrificial lamb the world ever would need. In that final moment, he even was abandoned by the Heavenly Father as he died with the sins of the world on his shoulders, including the sins of everyone who betrayed him. Just think about that. The people who sent him to the cross actually could have been forgiven if they would have recognized the wrong they had done and then repented in sorrow and put their trust in Jesus. The crucifixion presents an amazing picture of a loving yet unloved Savior. And the reality is that we are not worthy of his love. Yet he lavishes it on us anyway. I don't know about you, but this makes me realize just how precious I am to God. Oh, does he love me. And oh, does he love you. Yet it's hard to hear this as a love story because it's so gruesome. Crucifixion is one of the most barbaric forms of execution ever invented. We know that human beings are capable of incredible acts of greatness and kindness, but crucifixion shows that we also are capable of horrific acts of depravity. However, we don't really find too much vivid detail about that in the Bible. The true horror of Jesus' last day does not come through in the biographies of Jesus. And why is that? Because crucifixion was so bad And so ugly that God wanted to spare us the gruesome details. As Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote about this unjust execution, the Holy Spirit prompted them to only give us an overview. You see, we don't need to wallow in the gore. We just need to recognize what Jesus endured. And we need to realize that he willingly went to the cross because of one unchangeable fact. He loves us. So this painful love story leads to a key point that every person must wrestle with. How will I respond to the love of the crucified Savior? Based on real life examples from the biblical story, I want to highlight three different ways that people often respond to the crucifixion of Jesus. Response number one, callous indifference. That's the attitude of the Roman soldiers as we see in verses 35 and 36. 
After they had finished nailing him to the cross and were waiting for him to die, they whiled away the time by throwing dice for his clothes. It's hard for me even to understand those words as I read them. I can't imagine doing this. You've just driven nails into the body of another human being and hung him up to die, and then, then you casually sit down right beneath him and start playing games. I don't know what to call it, but callous indifference. And then, of course, we have the people in the crowd who mock Jesus while he's hanging there. They actually find it amusing to sarcastically poke fun at a man who is in physical agony. The only way you can be so indifferent to human suffering is if you have a hard, calloused heart. Yet they are not the only ones. Because in every age, in every generation, there always are people who can look at Jesus on the cross and respond with callous indifference. Please, please do not be one of them. Response number two, spiritual stubbornness. That's the attitude of the people who hear Jesus cry out and think he's calling for Elijah the prophet. And this reaction only makes sense when we learn a little bit about Jewish history. Elijah was a great Jewish prophet who never actually died. Instead, he was taken to heaven by God in a chariot of fire. It's not surprising that the Jewish people were captivated by that dramatic event. And in addition, there are prophecies in the Old Testament which tell us that Elijah will return before the arrival of the Messiah. So lots of Jewish people are looking for Elijah to come back. However, Jesus told people that John the Baptist was the fulfillment of the ancient prophecies. John the Baptist came in the spirit and the power and the image of Elijah. In other words, Elijah never was going to literally return. Someone like Elijah would show up. John the Baptist did. And he came to point people to Jesus, the Messiah. Yet many still are looking for Elijah. They want to see the chariot guy, so they refuse to accept the clear evidence of John the Baptist's life and ministry and teaching. And they refuse to accept the truth of what Jesus said about John. Their attitude is, I know what I think, don't confuse me with the facts. Sadly, there always are people like this. People who know what they know and don't want to know anything more. They get their minds set on something and they become spiritually stubborn. And this sometimes can be the response of people who have been believers for a long time. We can get set in our ways. We can get comfortable with what we know. And then we find ourselves not really interested in learning anything new from Jesus. Could that ever be me? Could that ever be you? I hope not. I hope we never become spiritually stubborn. Response number three, curiosity. This is the attitude of Simon, the man who is forced to carry the cross of Jesus. His appearance in this story is fascinating, and the clues we get in the Bible invite us to dig deeper. We know that Simon is from Cyrene, located in what today is the nation of Libya in North Africa. 
So Simon has traveled more than 1,000 miles to participate in the Passover in Jerusalem. And for him, this is a spiritual pilgrimage. It might even be a once-in-a-lifetime experience. And he has no connection with Jesus. He's probably never even heard of him. And he's just walking through Jerusalem when a crowd appears surrounding a guy with a cross. And the man obviously is weak. He's struggling with his burden. And suddenly Simon is grabbed by a Roman soldier who forcibly puts him to work. And this is where it gets interesting. In the biographies of Jesus, we encounter scores of people who are anonymous. A leper who is healed. A blind man who receives his sight. A woman who is cured of perpetual bleeding. Jesus works impressive miracles in the lives of many people who remain nameless. And so a random guy who performs the menial task of carrying the cross easily could be mentioned without a name. Yet Matthew not only knows the name, he also knows the hometown. The book of Mark goes even further and tells us the names of Simon's sons. Where do they get this information? Well, they certainly didn't get it from the Romans. The soldiers obviously wouldn't conduct an interview before drafting Simon. Uh, Sir, we're we're looking for someone to carry this man's cross. May we have your name and address, please? And uh, by the way, do you have any children? And if so, what are their names? Obviously not. Soldiers wouldn't waste time doing that. They could care less about Simon as a person. They would just turn and look at the crowd. They would grab the nearest able-bodied man and put him to work. It's clear then that the biblical authors had to make some effort to learn about Simon. And with so many anonymous characters around Jesus... Why would the identity of this one man be so important? We get the answer from church history. By reading early historical accounts, we learn that Simon is filled with curiosity in this moment when his plans are interrupted. He wonders, who is this Jesus guy? Why is he being executed? And so he doesn't just drop off the cross at Skull Hill and then continue on his way. He stays to watch the crucifixion, and it leaves a lasting impression. He then pokes around town, and he hunts up people who are followers of Jesus so he can learn more. And ultimately, Simon becomes a believer. By the time the biographies of Jesus are written many years later, Simon and his sons have become part of the community of faith. Believers will know Simon as a brother in Christ, or at the very least, they will have heard of him. So as they read these accounts, they will be able to say, oh, that's Simon. Because they know the rest of the story, they will be able to connect the dots. They will realize that the rude interruption to Simon's time in Jerusalem actually was a divine appointment. And they will see the value of responding to the crucifixion with curiosity. Because Simon was curious. He wanted to know more. His curiosity led him to Jesus. If you're listening to this message and you don't know Jesus, I hope his willingness to die for you will fill you with curiosity to learn more. I hope you'll ponder and ask questions and dig deeper. 
And perhaps God will use that curiosity to draw you to Jesus, just as he did with Simon. And if I can help you in any way, if I can answer any questions, feel free to send me an email. Bruce at Gardenway.net. I'd love to hear from you. This painful, brutal love story compels all of us to respond in some way. How is God inviting you? How is God inviting me to respond today? What new thing might Jesus ask of each of us in response to his loving sacrifice on the cross?